Kent Hughes, he was the former pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, and says this. It's just a little short story. Some years ago, as a youth pastor, I hiked with some of my high schoolers to the top of Mount Whitney in California, the highest spot in the continental United States, 4,418 meters, or 4.4 kilometers high. We exulted over the wonderful panorama of the Sierra Nevadas, the Mojave Desert, What a spot. It was with its rarefied, crystal clear air, its indigo and turquoise lakes, vista giving way to vista as far as one could see. As we gazed together from what seemed to be the top of the world, one of our party pointed out that only eight miles to the southeast was Death Valley, the lowest spot in the United States at 85 meters below sea level, in the hottest place in the country with a record 57 degrees Celsius in the shade. What contrasts? One place is the top of the world, the other the bottom. One place is perpetually cool, the other relentlessly you can only look up to the rest of the world. This story to me illustrates for us our own lives to our understanding of the Easter story in coming to faith in the resurrected Christ. Think of Saul on the Damascus Road. And you can read this in Acts chapter 9, 1 through 22 yourself. But as he's walking down the Damascus Road, Paul was very much living in a valley. That's all he knew. He was in his world. And as he walked in his valley, he could see nothing else. Listen for, as I read the first two verses of Acts chapter 9. Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. For Saul, Easter represented two things. The first thing that it represented for him, it was a threat. It was a threat to Judaism, and he was committed to stomping out that threat. The second thing it meant for him as a Pharisee, it meant an opportunity for advancement. By stomping out this Jewish sect called the Way, Paul would seem more holy than others, and he could begin to move forward in his religious advancement as a Pharisee. Paul was in the grip of sin. He was living in a valley of murderous rage, as undeserving as anyone, and by our standards, more undeserving than others. But Saul encountered on the Damascus Road, the center of the Easter story. It's there that he encountered Jesus Christ. And yet, even in that valley... Paul was not out of reach of the mercy and love of Christ, of God's grace. And over the next few days, as Paul was in the town, he was in darkness, his own personal darkness, in his own valley. But soon he was to be taken to new heights that he could never imagine, all through the redeeming grace of God. Now, grace is derived from a Greek word, charis, That word in English, we would translate it meaning favor, blessings, or kindness. See, God's substitutionary death on the cross 
was his way of showing mercy and kindness and grace, not only to Paul, but to all of us. In unmerited, undeserved favor, that's what Saul received from God. And that's what this weekend is all about. This weekend, Easter, is all about God demonstrating his love toward us. Romans 5.8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That encapsulates the Easter story. We were still sinners and Christ demonstrates his love to us through the cross and sending Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, as we look into Ephesians and what was written to the church of Ephesus, may our eyes be opened up to the truths there. May you take your word and apply it to our lives. May we leave with a great understanding, a greater understanding of what you've done for us through the cross, through the resurrection, and how much you love us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Easter. Thank you for this opportunity just to focus in on what the resurrection means to us personally. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. This morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. I want you to note in the Greek, when you look at those verses 1 through 10, in the original, that is one long sentence. I imagine my English teacher from high school would make lots of red marks on my paper if I wrote one that long. And together we're going to look at the problem, the problem of man. And Death Valley probably represents that very well. We're going to look at God's solution, how we can move from the valley, from Death Valley to a mountaintop. And what does it mean for those who decide to join in on that journey? How will that affect us? So that's where we're going to go this morning. So Ephesians chapter 2, let's look at the verse, first three verses. And you are dead in the, tra- in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, first note, Ephesians is written both to Gentiles and to the Jewish people in the church. That was the audience. And Paul ensures in his language that that is understood. This letter is applicable to everyone. I want to borrow a a wrestling term. Paul, as he writes this, these first three verses, the wrestling term I'm going to borrow is no holds barred. That's the description of what we see here. He holds nothing back when he writes this. Look at the words he uses to describe us apart from God. Dead. Corpse. And corpses are helpless, right? They can't do anything. Why? Why are we dead? Because of our trespasses. Or in the NIV, it says transgressions. If you have the New Living, it's disobedience. Offenses, if you're reading out of the Net Bible or the NASB. They're all used to describe something morally amiss, something wrong, sinning morally, a moral failure, stepping out of bounds when it comes to God's law. So you and I, we are, before Christ, dead corpses outside the law. 
Then he uses the term sin, usually referencing an act contrary to the will and law of God. So before we encounter Easter ourselves, you and I are dead, useless, rotting corpses. Paul's case is airtight as he sets this before the people. If God's law is the standard, then you and I are in trouble. Believers and unbelievers, we like to appeal to this kind of moral law, a moral standard, right? C.S. Lewis, if you want to look at this further, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about a moral standard. I know we have the audio version. Do we have the book of Mere Christianity? We do. There's an audio version and a book in the library. Um, And he appeals to this moral standard. And and we all believe it. Talk to somebody. We all believe stealing's wrong. Why? Wherever you go, people just don't think you should take other people's stuff. Predominantly, we all believe that murder is wrong. And that if that occurs, someone should be punished. So everybody has this understanding of right and wrong. Paul's point here simply is that with God's standard... You and I are dead. We are guilty of breaking that standard. Look at verse 2 with me again. In which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I'm going to read that again, but this time from the New Living. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. One commentator had, had this to say about the verse. You formerly walked in line with the course of this world in which environment you formerly moved about freely, feeling perfectly at home, conducting, your, conducting yourselves in complete harmony with the spirit of the age that marks mankind alienated from God. See, before we encounter Christ, before we come to faith, wherever and whenever that was for you, you felt comfortable walking in the valley. That's all you knew. So the valley was your home. I grew up for 10 years in Hamilton on the mountain before we moved out to Oneida Township. And then Hamilton was still the center of our lives. Hamilton was where we shopped. Hamilton's where we went to church. Hamilton's where we almost did everything. When I grew up in Hamilton, I can think of standing out over the mountain brow, as they called it, and and how awesome that felt as a young person. Looking across on a clear crystal day, you could see Toronto, Hogtown, all that was bad in the world, because I rooted for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. But you could see it. Some 60 kilometers away or 38 miles, there was Hamilton. And to me, it was spectacular. It had a great vista, as my American friends would say. But I learned something. It wasn't too far after that time that I began working with a mission group out of Colorado Springs. And I became less impressed with Hamilton Mountain See, my bedroom window, every morning, I woke up 
to the sun shining from the east to the west on what we called Pike's Peak. And that was my bedroom window. So the first thing I saw as light dawned was the snow caps on Pike's Peak that would usually stay around. They had a contest. You could right away and win a prize if you guessed when the snow would melt off Pike's Peak. And it was usually there between Canada Day and the American Independence Day is when it would melt. But that was a vista. And then I had the opportunity to go up the Cog Railway. And when I went up on the Cog Railway, we went up to about ten or 12,000 feet. We didn't go quite to the top, although I did one time later make it to the top. And I recall hiking down the mountain into Manitou Springs. And as we're at the top and as we looked out, they had this picture beside that you could pick out things out in the distance. From that vista, and I learned what Buena Vista meant that day, good view. From that view, you could pick out the Kansas City state line some 200 miles away. All of a sudden, growing up in Steeltown, the mountain, even with all its waterfalls, wasn't so impressive anymore. When you're living in the valley, that's all you know. When I lived in Hamilton, to me, the mountain was huge until I moved to Colorado Springs. But when you live in the valley, that is all you know. You know no better. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, the sinful nature was normal. Living out our passions in the flesh, fulfilling the desires of our mind, well, that was our natural state apart from God. See, what we see on the evening news, what we see on our favorite um, website channel to, to surf to to get the news, that's who we are. That's the world that you and I live in. And I'm not saying man cannot do any good. Obviously, we are created in the image of God as marred as it is. But we do not live in a world that is naturally bent towards good. Our history should tell us that. Our history is full of destruction and death. At present, we're all focused in on Russia's illegal aggression to Ukraine and what's happening there. But that's not the only armed conflict in our world today. By far, there are other armed conflicts. There's still stuff going on in Afghanistan. Ethiopia, how long has that been going on? The drug war in Mexico. Yemen, it's a civil war there. And there are 17 major armed conflicts around the world today. But how about in North America? 153 murders so far this year, as of last weekend, in Chicago. As of last week, Toronto was up to 15 murders this year. And that doesn't take into account all the other behaviors and things that happen in our world. You want to see if we're basically good. I don't think they have a map like this for forests, but they do if you go to the city site in London, and it shows you all the robberies, all the assaults, everything that happened, and you can pull it up. And London's just full of it. From one end to the other, it doesn't matter what neighborhood you're in. And today, if you say the wrong word or the wrong phrase, 
You can have your career canceled, your business canceled, your life canceled just for using one wrong word. We're not naturally good inside. And when we live at odds with God, when you're at odds with God, you become or you are still, if you're at odds with God, the object of his wrath. From the New Living, John 3.36, And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. Theologically, this whole passage is what we refer to as total depravity. And if we're to use our opening illustration again, it's like living in death valley. Man is naturally deprived. We are bent towards sin. But here's where Easter comes in. Here's where God comes and steps into human history. Why does he do that? Well, he does it because we're dead corpses. We can't do anything. We're dead. So God steps in and does it for us. God brings forth a solution for mankind. That's what Easter's about. Verses 4 through 7. But, but what? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul's words, worth noting, He describes the solution and why God chooses to do this. Look at some of those words. Rich means wealthy, abounding. What's he rich and wealthy and abounding in? Mercy. The moral quality of feeling compassion, showing kindness towards someone in need. And then great, like large. God's got large love. Agape, the act of love of God. It's who God is. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's that big word, propitiation. So I looked it up for us. The word propitiation carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction, specifically toward God. And propitiation has two parts to it. The act that involves appeasing the wrath of the offended person and also being reconciled to him. So Easter is all about God appeasing his wrath. Okay? And and don't let anybody tell you that's not what it is. It's hard doctrine, but it's God appeasing his own wrath through his son, Jesus Christ. It's not appeasement to Satan. It's his appeasement. And it's not only his appeasement, but it's his reconciliation. Bringing us back into relationship with him. 
that is what Easter is about. Francis Folks, a theologian from New Zealand, wrote this. We have the gracious initiative and sovereign action of God. He is not only merciful, showing his pity to those who are totally unworthy and undeserving. That mercy proceeds from his love. There is a longing in the heart of God for humanity. Isn't that great? There's a longing in the heart of God for humanity. That's why he did what he did. Even though we were dead, God redeemed us. He made us alive in Christ, saved by his grace. We defined this earlier, right? The phrase of being his favor and kindness towards us. The phrase made alive in Christ, which we find here, is the main verb of this long sentence. We were dead. He made us alive. That's why we're here this morning, isn't it? We were dead. He made us alive. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we read this. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And in Colossians, we read this. You are dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. The cross brought about regeneration. The resurrection brought about rebirth for believers, for all those who are willing to act in faith. We were recipients of God's favor. He chose to give us new life. Look at 6 and 7 of Ephesians 2. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In that verse there's a little bit of here but not yet. Right? A little bit of, yeah, it's here, but not yet. See, once you have faith in Christ, you are made alive. Spiritually, we're made alive. Positionally, we're seated with Jesus Christ in heavenly places. That's our position. But physically or practically, we're not there yet. We're united with Christ, and spiritually, we are there. He who sits at the right hand throne, or the right hand throne of God lives within us. That is our position. But practically we are left here still working out our salvation. But his physical seeding has secured for us our eternal salvation and our guaranteement that we will be there with him. It's a little bit reminiscent from what Paul wrote earlier in Ephesians in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. But why, why did God go to all the trouble? Why did he do this for you and I? Well, verse 7. So in the coming 
ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It can also be translated this way. So God can point to us in all future ages as an example of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. I like one commentator. He had this to say. He planned a continuing exhibition of his favor toward man to cover all the centuries between the ascension and the return of Christ and even after that through all eternity. Now, no illustration's ever going to do this justice. But here's the point. This is what God did. It's like he took... No pictures in here. I should have brought a picture. But it's like he took your picture, right? And he went to the mantel place. And he put your picture up on the mantel place. And he points at it. And he says, hey, look. Look at them. Look what I did for them. Where they were in Death Valley. Where they were walking in darkness. I want you to know how much I love you. What I did for you. That's what he's talking about here. He points and says, see how much I love them? He wants people to know how much he has done for you and I. How much he loves us. How he rescued us. How he breathed new life into us. As undeserving as you and I are, he points and he says, see, I love them. And as we celebrate Easter, we can think, you know what? He's pointing now at all those who've come to faith in Christ. And he's saying, see how much I love them. As he looks out, how much I love them. How much he loves you and I, regardless of what we've done, regardless of where we've been. He says, I love you. I died for you. If we were to get what we deserve, if we were to get the punishment we deserve, that's just what it would be. The consequences of our sins, wrath and eternity in hell, misery. But rather, through the cross, through his resurrection, he gives us hope, mercy, grace, forgiveness, and eventually heaven. Seems like a good deal to me. I can't earn it. He freely gives it. Taking me from Death Valley to a mountaintop. What could I ever do to deserve this? Look at verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not of works. So that no one can boast. Paul repeats verse 5. By grace you have been saved. It's his favor, blessing or kindness. It's God's blessing to us. It's all God's doing. Paul states it's a gift, a gift from God. Unmerited, undeserved. Not of anything we could do. No one can boast, no one can say, hey, I did this or I did that and God accepted me. That's not what he's saying here. It's all God. But there's a tension here. The tension is this. 
God did everything. There's nothing I can do to merit salvation. But he still asked me to respond in faith. I don't get it. He does everything, but I still have to respond in faith. I am still held accountable for my decision, but he did everything, and I can't boast in it. I have spent years studying this. I spent probably some extra time studying it this week, trying to put it together. I am held accountable, responsible for my actions. I'm responsible to respond in faith to what he's done for me, but he's done everything so I can respond in faith. I'll also be held accountable if I reject his grace. See, Scripture's clear. God does everything. And it's undeserved favor. And it's a gift held out for you and I. But scripture is also very clear that we are responsible to respond. And how you put those two together, good luck. I haven't been able to do it. I just trust. I trust God. I see those two truths much like railroad tracks. When you stand on railroad tracks, if you're ever hiking, just make sure the train ain't coming the other way. But you stand, there's two truths. One truth is God's done everything, and the other truth is I'm to respond in faith. I can't tell you how they fit together, but I know in eternity somehow God works it all out. And I'm willing to trust in that, that he puts it all together for us. Romans 3.22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ. Not because we have obeyed the law, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. So it's all God, but we have a responsibility to respond in faith. But he's done it all for you and I. Finally, we get to the mountaintop, or get journeying up the mountain. What happens? What effect should all of this have for us? God has died on the sent his son to die on the cross... The death has happened. He's resurrected. He makes us new. He gives us that new life. How should this affect us? What effect should it have on our lives as God lifts us out of Death Valley and changes our vista? Once we're raised to new life, it's only the beginning. And Scripture is clear. We are not redeemed to sit on some rock and stare out at the vista or to sit in a pew at church or in this case, a chair. That's not why he did it. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, good works have been ruled out as gaining favor with God and regarding salvation they're still important. They're important enough that God has created us in order that we should perform good works. See, good works are the outcome of all that has gone before. 
Good works is the outcome of verses 1 through 9. Good works are not salvation, but rather proof of salvation, the salvation that we've been granted by God. God is at work in us, and the result should be works for him. James 2, 14 through 18, we read this. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm, eat well. But then you don't don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. Now someone may argue, some people have faith and others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. See, good works are part of God's plan for our lives. Good works is what God wants us to do. And he's given us the opportunity to do them. So if we have the opportunity to, good, to do good, and we're able to, we have the resources or ability, then we should step out and do them. Being raised in new life means living a new way. Right? Being raised in new life means living a new way. While the new, but the new view from the position we now hold is great, we've been given more by God to do. To work through us, to re, he works through us to reach others for Jesus Christ. See, part of the good works is to reach back down into that valley and share the good news of Jesus Christ. To help them come out of the valley as God works in their life. And even if they don't accept Christ, he still wants us to reach down and show his love to them. Good works is coming alongside a brother or a sister or someone that is in need and helping them along the journey as we work out our salvation and move up that mountain together. Easter is a celebration. It's a celebration of new life. New life made available to us because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. New life that we have to respond to in faith. It's an invitation for those who don't know the Lord to come out of Death Valley, to begin a new journey towards a better vista. And while in one sense we're placed instantly at the top of that mountain in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, it's a journey that you and I are on together as we travel, as God seeks to make us and mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. Read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 16 through 18. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and what, for the Lord is the Spirit, and whenever the Spirit of the Lord it, wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the of the Lord. And the Lord, who is in spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. 
number of years ago, there was a, um, there was a camp- campaign, and I get these letters wrong, WWWJD. Do you remember that? It was on bracelets. It was on T-shirts. It was on hats. Unfortunately, after a while, it felt more like a, a, a marketing campaign for money than anything. But the initial starting of that actually had some merit to it. What would Jesus do? I'd go as far as to making the initials a little bit different. I would go to making them W-W-J-H-Y-D. What would Jesus have you do? We need to look, what would Jesus have us do? We can't do everything. Obviously, if we try to do everything, then we'd become useless to everybody. But we can do something. See, God has a good work for you, a place for you to work in his kingdom, a place to come alongside someone and not just be sitting down in a pew or sitting on some rock on the side of the mountain staring at this nice vista. So what would Jesus have you do? It's interesting enough that in England, um, they've given new jobs to the mail couriers. They found out one of the hardest things in England right now is they're struggling with loneliness. People are lonely, especially seniors. You talk to a senior sometime. They get lonely. They don't go out to work like you do. They don't have some of the same connections sometimes. So the postal people, as they go about their routes on certain days, stop in certain homes just to chat with the person inside and talk with them because they're lonely. So what can you do? Perhaps it's someone in the church. As you look around, you realize they don't have family or their husband's died or their wife's died. Or perhaps they have a a sick spouse and spend a lot of time caretaking for them. Maybe your good deed is to come alongside and say, hey, can I come over for a cup of tea? Do you need a break so you can go out grocery shopping? That's helping somebody along a journey. Or maybe you have a neighbor on your street and you notice uh, Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving, the car in the driveway doesn't leave and nor does a car come in. And maybe you know they're in the valley and you can come alongside of them and say, hey, now I was thinking about you Easter and you know, we had a meal and maybe you invite them down or maybe you go with somebody to them and sit down with them to cheer their day up. I hate to use myself as an illustration but I will on this one. We have a lady, her kids do see her but she gets lonely. How old is she now? 90, Jeannie? 90-something, 93 or 94 or 95. She still lives on her own. But her kids are usually really good with her, but she gets lonely. So when I was young, I was a bit of a smart aleck. 
maybe I still am. And um, so I, I was always frugal with my money, and I thought, it's our first anniversary. I'll just buy her one rose for our first anniversary. And then our second anniversary, I bought her two roses. No, when you've been married 35 years, it gets expensive. <laughs> but, but I have extra roses, right? Because I'm not taking three dozen. It's cheaper to buy three dozen, but I have these extra roses. So the lady down the road, is, she's still alive and she's counting down. She's, oh, I, I, I just get one rose this coming year. I stop by her place and I take her the extra roses. And it cheers her up. There are the things that you and I can do with our neighbors and people around us. Maybe you don't have the resources to hire somebody at your workplace, whatever it is, farm, industry. Maybe you don't have the influence. Or maybe you don't have the money to help a whole lot of people out. But maybe there's somebody at the church you know that's struggling. Maybe they're on a, a disability pension from the government, which I worked with that for years. It's not tons. Maybe it's a senior you know that's struggling, used to one set of amount, and then their spouse dies, and all of a sudden it shrinks up quite small. Or maybe it's just a young family as they're getting started in life. And you can't help out everybody, but you have the resources where you get up out one. And you reach out and help in a way that you can. Or maybe it's taking a child from compassion and saying, I'm going to help this one child. So there's one less lonely person in the world. There's one less family struggling. There's one less child in the world struggling. The cross of Jesus Christ the resurrection at Easter should make a marked difference in our lives. It has made the difference in your life of lifting you out of Death Valley. It's made the difference of putting your life within Christ and seated in heavenly places. It has secured your eternity and salvation, but does it make a difference to your neighbor and the person that you go to church with on a Sunday morning? Because it should. Faith always has works. Love, and you can go back to the fruit of the Spirit, but it has an outworking that you show those around you, your love for them and your kindness. We spent all kinds of time early when I first came here in Ruth, and it goes back to that. God, through Easter, has shown his has said to us. We know it need to show has said loving kindness to one another. So who can you help on this journey? We're all in a journey of faith for those who's, who have come to Christ in faith. Who can we help out in our journey as we journey together? And who can we invite into the journey that's still living in the valley and needs to hear about Christ? We can't we can't worry if they're going to respond yes or no. That's God. Remember, he does it all. But we've been given the responsibility to go tell those in the valley. Let's pray. Father, as we think of Easter and all that it means and how the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has infused into us new life, a new life that should make a difference in the world that we live in, 
a new life that you have prepared for us good works. Father, may we this Easter think how we can take this message, this gift of eternal salvation, and proclaim the news to those that don't know it. And Father, work in our hearts to understand how we can help those around us who are journeying up that mountain, working out our salvation together. Father, in unity, looking towards you, may this be the goal of each person here this morning. May this be my goal as I journey this life, as we journey this life together, that we look for those opportunities, for good works that you have prepared for us to step in and to do. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the resurrection and all that that empty tomb means in our life and how it has secured our eternal salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.